0: I am excited to be talking to Andrea Owen today. I love the energy that she brings in the videos I've seen of her and the book that that I've read of hers makes some noise. And I believe that she has a story to tell, but also inspiration and encouragement to give on really how to show up as our best selves and not be sorry for that. And who... I know I need some of that. I know many women and men in my life need some of that. So thank you for joining me today, Andrea. Thanks
1: for having me. I'm excited, and, and I'm I'm curious as to which direction this conversation
0: will go because it could go really anywhere. Physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual—these are the four areas of attraction, or as, as insiders like to call it, the pies. Join me, Kimberly Beam Holmes, as we speak with other experts around the world on how to become the most attractive that you can be. Create confidence and find happiness. We will teach you how. It starts with attraction and it starts now. People ask me all the time, Kimberly, which area of my pies should I focus on first? And the answer to that question is the one where you need to see the most growth. That is why I have created an attraction assessment. This free assessment is designed to help you learn what areas of attraction you should be working and focusing on first. This will be the foundation of your journey to becoming a more attractive person to your spouse, to your friends and family, but most of all, to yourself. Click the link in the show notes to take the free assessment today. So your book especially makes some noise. A lot of it is very female focused. M- this audience that we're talking to, there's men and women. There's probably about 60% women, but there's, you know, 40% men. So I don't want to lose our men today. I believe there's value for it, but explain to the men and women listening why it's important for both genders to lean into this topic. Uh-huh.
1: Yes. And so the only reason that I focus my work on women is just because that's sort of the direction that it went in the beginning. I felt like it resonated more with women. And from my own experience, like I experienced the world as someone who identifies as a woman and was socialized that way. And so that's why my, my work goes in that direction. This is not at all to say that, that men don't also need support and help. They do. And, you know, this latest book, I've had, I've had plenty of men email me or send me a message on Instagram and saying, I read your, your book and it helped me so much to understand my wife or my girlfriend Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. the other women in my life. And especially with this book that I, that just came out, make some noise, I talk about the culture that raised us and that culture affected men negatively as well, uh, especially in their relationships. It's a culture that taught men that their emotions should not be shown, that, you know, they have to be a certain way in order to be valued in our society. And it's, and it's hurtful to them and keeps them in a box as well. However, my work does focus on, on women, but I'll make sure and like, you know, give examples and stuff for both women, men and women. Please don't stop listening, men. That's
0: right. <laughs> Lean in, you'll learn a lot. I know yes. that you will. I know that you will. How did you get into the the work that you're in now of of coaching, of writing the books, of really just having this platform of encouraging people in in their confidence and and to make some noise?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny, kind of funny, not funny. Uh, In 2002 ish, I learned about life coaching. So this is when it was way in its infancy and Mm -hmm. like really nobody knew what it was. And I can't even remember how I stumbled upon it, but I was, I was married. I was married to someone else at the time. And I remember being on the computer in our bedroom and, and telling him about it. And like, this seems so awesome. Like, I feel like I would be good at this. I've always been, you know, the consummate cheerleader and was a literal cheerleader in my past as well. I think I'd be good at being a life coach, helping people live their best life. But I think I, I a great life coach would have to have some life experience, which I didn't have a whole lot of at the time. So it was in my, in my mid to late twenties then when I discovered it and was talking to him about it. Lo and behold, the universe has a sense of humor. And uh, my husband and I, my then husband and I were talking about conceiving our first child. We had been together for many, many, many years at the time. And he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. And so we divorced. I'm making a very long story short. I fell in love with someone else very quickly. Unfortunately, he had terminal cancer. So I took care of him for months while he had cancer. And about eight or nine months into that relationship, I found out that he was addicted to painkillers and had been the entire time that we were together, but also had lied about having cancer the whole time we were together to cover up his drug addiction. I found out that same week that I was pregnant with his child. And so my life was completely upside down. I it was my rock bottom moment and it was a few months later that I signed up for life coaching certification because I was like if not now when? <laughs> so there was my life experience and uh it was not easy. I'm not going to say, you know, my life changed in an instant, but that was really when I threw myself into my own personal development and of course, it never ends. The journey never ends, but that's
0: really how I got started. So you started the process of life coaching at your rock bottom, Yeah, so many times in our lives, that would be the time where we would say to ourselves, "I'm not qualified. Not yeah. now. You know, I have to wait until this, that or the other occurs." So how did you did you have those voices in your head that were saying, stop no you're not qualified if so how did you move through them or did you just not have them were you just so determined
1: well i've always been very much drawn to education you know i think many of us are our life learners you know my great my great aunt um, my aunt Chonita, like she was still taking like junior college courses in her nineties. So I, I don't know if it's oh, in my, it. if it's in my blood, but I love education and I, I am, I am just always curious about things. And so, you know, I have a, I have a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology with an emphasis in, in health science. And I was also getting trained. Like I knew I couldn't just, even though the coaching industry isn't regulated, I knew that I, I mean, I didn't know how to coach <laughs> like because it's <laughs> not like giving advice. I needed to get the, sure. the training and, yeah. and the skills. And then I also went and was certified in the work of Dr. Brené Brown and was trained in that. So no, because I always knew that I didn't want to always act like I had everything perfect and together. I never understood that model. It's, it's a very typical therapist model it's an old model and which we're starting to get away from but i i always knew that you know if and when i had clients i would want them to know that i was not perfect i don't want anyone putting me on a pedestal and i'm also very good at compartmentalizing like i can i it's it's a self-management skill like i can leave my stuff at home at the door when i come in to see clients and be able to compartmentalize and focus on them as my client rather than get caught up in my own stuff
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You're right. I was, so I was trained as a marriage and family therapist. And I mean, first year of classes is about how you do not self identify. You do not let them know anything about you. When they ask questions, you avoid because, and part of it is self protection, which you need to have as a coach too. It has
1: its place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It
0: does have its place. But then there's this other part of it, which is kind of this unspoken. You don't want them to know your real life, like what you've struggled with or what you don't. And, and you're right. There is such, I mean, we see it. People connect with those when they realize they understand because they've been through, they've been through something. And that is, we do need more of that. We absolutely need more of that.
1: It's a tricky balance, right? Because like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if anyone's ever probably with a friend, like you share something with a friend that you're struggling with and then they make it about them. Like, no, (laughs) you have to learn that balance and and maybe just share anecdotes. But I remember in therapy in my twenties, I begged my therapist to share something personal about her. And I, I was straightforward. And I said, I make up that you have a perfect marriage because you have so much wisdom and share so many important tools and strategies with me, and she kind of laughed and she said, no, like i still I have my own therapist and and she told she told me just like a really small story uh, she gave me like a little slice of the pie of her life, but even just that was so helpful for me to to be able to relate to her and understand like we really all have
0: struggles Mhm, me too so. You've written this book. it it has recently come out. Make some noise. It's not your first book, but it's your newest book. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to write this book, and why did you decide to write it now?
1: Yeah, so I'll answer those backwards. I decided to write it now because I got to a point you where know, I had written two previous personal development books, more specifically women's empowerment books. And 2016 happened. The Me Too movement of 2017 happened, and me, like many women, um, I like many women, I should say, is the proper grammatical term, felt the collective trauma. You know, felt the collective conversation that was happening. And the short, the short story is that I got to a place where I knew in my heart that I could not write another personal development book. For women, especially, without talking about the elephant in the room, and that is our culture. I'm obsessed with getting to the root of the problem. Like, I want, like, like let's let's find a solution the the shortest and easiest way there. And so, and I would get a lot of women. I'm sure you do too in your practice who who ask me like, why do I do this? Where does this come from? And I, I found myself answering it by saying, well, some of it is the way you're wired. You know, we're all wired differently. Some of us have neurodivergence, you know, mental health struggles. Um, a lot of it comes from your family of origin and also a lot of it comes from the culture that raised us because our parents were raised by the culture, you know, like none of us can escape it. And so I, I had to point out all of these things that, um, that can, truly cause harm to us. And, and even, you know, the, the more the intersections too, depending on your, your race, your sexuality, um, your class, like all these other factors matter when it comes to our own empowerment and they need to be named and, and we need to figure out how to, how to simultaneously live in the culture, as well as move past many of the ways that we are being held back.
0: So there's essentially 15 things, but you've broken them into things to start doing and things to stop doing. You would say that differently. There might <laughs> Which be a I love. four letter word in there. <laughs> I will. I love, I love. Um, but it, as I was reading through them, it, it resonated right? Like even in your chapter one of start taking up some damn space. I was in a yoga class a couple of years ago. And this is, this is exactly what triggered in my memory when, when I read this. And I remember the teacher at the end in Savasana, where like, you know, you get all cozy, you're supposed to like spread out your arms and your legs, but you never really do it that much because like you're laying on a mat. And she said, take up space, stop being small. And I thought, what a strange thing to say. Like, why did she say that? And she just really harped on that, you know, y- you are allowed to stretch out wide. You are allowed to take up space here and in your life. And so when I read through that chapter, which I want you to, to talk about, why is that, for, first of all, why is that chapter one? Mm-hmm. And why did you make, why is that so important to you as a starting ground that we need to realize that we're allowed to take up space?
1: Yes, there was a specific reason it was chapter one. Originally, chapter nine was going to be the opening chapter, and that chapter is about you know the brainwashing that we all got. And my editor and I both realized that it was a little bit too intense for it to be the opening chapter. Uh, I think that it it could have gone either way, but we really had to think about the people who read the first chapter of a book and decide to either keep reading or say it's not for me. And and we were a little bit worried that again it was a little too intense, so. Take up space is a term that's been thrown around a lot in our in our spaces in personal development. and I wanted to not just tell people to do it, but talk about like what does it actually look like and I, I break that down in the chapter, but the reason I think it it probably resonates with so many people because whether we're conscious of this or not, we have from a young age, and when I say we, I mean everyone, we've had specific social programming that has been handed down to us, whether it's it's explicit or implicit. And you know for especially for little girls, we are typically taught that we are valued more and we are a good girl when we are quiet, when we are polite, when we are always nice, always nice, even when people are not nice to us, that um, we are to be accommodating. And we are to put everyone else's comfort before our own, make sure that everyone's feelings and, and comfort is our top priority. And I'm not saying that those are bad things, right? I'm not at all telling people to like go out and push people around and flip tables and flip off your boss and screw them. (laughs) Like, no, what I want the reader to do and everyone listening is just think about like where that conditioning holds you back. And if nothing else, I just want people to get curious. And and for the men listening, you have been socially programmed as well. And perhaps your social programming looks a specific way in terms of gender roles. And you find yourself arguing, you know, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, you're arguing with your partner. Um, maybe your social programming has told you that you are valued more. Um, if you make a certain amount of money, if you have a certain status, if you are a certain height, if you don't lose your hair, like there's, there's so many things where there's crossover and I don't want to leave anyone out of the conversation. So my bottom line is, is to think about what your conditioning has taught you and where it's holding you back.
0: Mm -hmm. You also further break it down, uh, taking up space. I think you were alluding to this earlier. So one way is with your body, like your physical being, kind of like the yoga instructor said in the class, but also our emotions and our voice. Right. This one really resonated with me because when I I vividly remember there was something that happened when I was younger, I thought it was wrong. Like it happened to me. I thought it was wrong. And when I said something about it, the people around me said, you're overreacting. Mm Mm-hmm but I wasn't overreacting. Like It's taken years of therapy to look back and realize I wasn't overreacting. But that situation led to years of self-doubt, of literally feeling like I couldn't speak, like like a frog in my throat, even when I knew I should. So dive into, into that part of it. What does it mean, especially with the emotions, with the voice? How can we do that in a way where we're not coming across the way we don't want to come across like you know rude overbearing all of those things but we're also not just don't speak yeah because
1: you don't want to be wrong oh my gosh we could talk about this for an entire podcast episode i think that there is something to say let me start here there is something to say about emotional regulation and there are some people who struggle with this and i i also you know you as a therapist probably you know understand that there are some people who really struggle with this and at the same time i wonder how things would change if we had we as parents and even those who aren't listening you know you or who don't have children sorry who think about their own parents like what if your parents would have had the emotional intelligence to raise you or you know we as parents to raise our children talking to them about feelings and emotions and that none of them are ever wrong. This is the short version of what I have taught my children. Your feelings are never wrong. Whatever comes up for you is absolutely perfect for you. It's your body's way of taking care of itself. What you are responsible for are your actions and your words when you are having those feelings. It's your behavior that stems from those feelings that you're responsible for. We don't always act the way that we should. And when we don't, we have to clean that up sometimes. So that sometimes means like apologizing if we slam the door in someone's face because we're angry and things like that. So emotional intelligence and just like emotional literacy, like not even intelligence. Can we just start with emotional literacy? <laughs> That's the 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 kind of the starting point. And and I think that some of us, like I might jump in the deep end here for a second. Some of us need to grieve that we didn't have that in our childhood and that we have grown up with these very strong beliefs about what it means to be emotional, what it means to quote unquote, mm-hmm. be strong
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, hyper-independence and, and things like that. So I kind of lost track of what your question was, Kimberly.
0: <laughs> Talking about topic. taking up space yeah. with the emotions, with our voice, voicing yes. the emotions or needs that we have.
1: So this topic can be so layered and heavy for people. I Mm -hmm. don't want to like jump from A to Z and just tell people, "Yes, speak up. Yes, take up space with your body," and all of, of course, all of those things. And I think for many people, it needs to start with grieving what they didn't get as a child, or trying to have self compassion for themselves if they've realized they haven't been talking about this with their children, whether they're young or grown, in in a way that they that they really truly wanted to. They just didn't have the the skills and the tools. It also one thing I I talk about a lot in the book is is the skill of curiosity. And it's not necessarily about taking massive action, even that goes against everything I've been taught as a life coach, but it is absolutely taking action when you're just getting curious about you know, how you view your emotions, how you do or do not speak up, how you do or do not set boundaries. Like what's going on with that? Why do you think that is? Um, what, what do you think might happen if you take up space with your voice or your opinion? So it's just, you know, ask a question in the beginning of the book and I pepper it throughout of, uh, to ask yourself, what is my conditioning versus what is my truth? Those are probably two very different answers and if anybody
0: if you leave with nothing else today remember that question. You give an example at one point in the book where uh, you you had requests of your husband. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about how do you how do you bring up things that maybe you're scared to talk about because you the answer could be no or it could lead to a fight and and so especially entering into your second marriage the marriage you're in yeah and now i love how you you said it you basically you know what i should let you say it but you get so you give a story about this about speaking your voice even when it could be uncomfortable or you don't know the outcome and why it was important to you to do it in this second marriage that you're in to make it work because it was what was a Like it's, you wanted to give it its best shot. So can you tell us about what that looked like? What, how did you approach that conversation? How did you do it in a way that wasn't attacking, but still honored you Mm -hmm. and your wants?
1: Yeah. You know, I read a statistic. I don't know if it was right when I first got divorced or when I was just first remarried that said that that's an even higher divorce rate in second marriages. And I thought, well, that sucks. And also I wonder why, like, why is that? And through years of therapy and my own work, I don't know for sure. Maybe you can, you can confirm or deny it's because just because we get remarried doesn't mean that we don't bring the same baggage with us. That's That's
0: exactly it.
1: You don't solve the problem within yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, both people, then mm-hmm. you're probably going to face the same problems. You're going to have the same triggers. You're going to have the same family of origin stuff. And I'm a huge fan of John Gottman's work. John and Julie mm-hmm. Gottman of the the Gottman Institute. I'm sure you're very familiar with them. And
0: I just his, had him on my podcast last week.
1: Have you really? Oh my yeah. gosh! I'm I'm a I'm a fan girl, and I'm I'm not a fan girl of very many people. But
0: his, he's amazing. What they his do is amazing. Work
1: is is life changing, and also. Yeah digestible and it's, it's basic communication. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm all for like, what is your attachment style and things like that. But if you don't know how to communicate properly and how to connect properly with your partner, it doesn't matter what your attachment style is. It doesn't matter what your love language is. Like it doesn't matter. And I, I think that in terms of taking up space with your voice, I have not only had to gather the courage to do it, And to like unpack my own family of origin stuff and my abandonment issues and things like that, but also come from a place of like co-creating the conversation instead of let me talk at you or, um, you know, I'm also his, the four horsemen of the apocalypse has been the simplest, I think and easiest way for me to dismantle and my husband to dismantle our are unhealthy behaviors and habits. I go to contempt and criticism, which is a marriage killer. And he is a stonewaller. I will say that I, I want to use past tense because he doesn't anymore, but that was so helpful in marriage therapy in marriage counseling for us to look at those and, and admit that that's what we do. And also, um, take responsibility for our behavior because it's so much easier to blame I mean, I'm over here like the criticizer, (laughs) like I your fault, if you would just do better, we would be happier. That doesn't work. And, um, and so I know I'm taking a long way to answer this, but my bottom line of it is, is a couple of things. It's communication and more specifically taking responsibility when you've been crappy and, and, and also like sometimes it's even in the middle of a disagreement or an argument, Learning one of the most mature things I've ever done in my marriage is when I'm having a disagreement with my husband. This was years ago, and I didn't argue back. And I said, "You're right. This is my stuff." And and I'm sorry. And the look on his face, he was just like, "What is? Where's my wife? What have you done with her?" And um and I and it's also extremely vulnerable to do that in a relationship because. The other person, you know, if they like to emotionally manipulate, like he could turn that around on me. And, and I've, I've had that happen to me before in a previous relationship. So it's extremely vulnerable to admit where you are not in the right and where you need to clean up a mess that you've made. And so it's like these small things that we've done. And, you know, Gottman talks about building trust over time, you know, bids for connection, like all of these small things that we have. We have given each other back and forth, have built this incredible, this incredible marriage. And I will tell you that it's it's so satisfying also to have come from what he and I both came from. We were attracted to each other because we were both very wounded. And to have come from that place and worked on ourselves individually and as a couple, it's incredibly satisfying. That is something unexpected that I didn't know that would come from this.
0: Mm -hmm. Was it like that from the time that you, you both got married or did you get married, enter into the second marriage and realize we still have stuff to figure out and you had to fight to make this one work?
1: We were already married when I was like, Oh my God. Um, you know, and I can't speak for him, but I, I, you know, I got sober in, so we got married in 2008. I got sober in 2011. So we had two babies I had a brand new business. And when I got sober was really when everything kind of exploded in my face for lack of a better expression. <laughs> and more specifically, where I was like, oh, snap, I have complex PTSD. Um, you know, my therapist had told me that, but I was like, no, I don't. And it turns out I I do. And and these like real mental health issues and this real trauma, you know, and he had his own stuff, and I Kind of stepped outside of it and was like, okay, we have two choices. We can either work on our own stuff and work on our marriage and like make an intentional commitment to it and see what happens. And like, fingers crossed, it'll work. It's going to probably take some time, or we can ignore this and then just see what happens. And like, I, that was my first marriage and it didn't work out. And so intuitively, I knew. What we needed to do, and it was also scary and vulnerable to come to him and say, "Hey, here's what I'm seeing. Um, I would really love for you to come with me on this journey. And what do you think?" <laughs> it was also hard for him because I work in this industry, and you know, he told me he's like it can be intimidating when when I don't know the the lingo and the jargon, and um, I also have a lot of energy, and, and we're different in that way, and so we have had to. You know, I know that vulnerability, the term gets thrown around so much, but it's very different when you and I are having this conversation and talking about it and when you're really in it in your marriage because it can, it can, and for the sake of sounding dramatic, it can sometimes feel so scary. Like you feel like, am I dying? Like, is this am I going to survive this? Like our brains are very interesting in that way and that fear response and um, our nervous system can kind of go haywire. And, and the reason that I'm being that honest is because that's my truth. And I, I don't know that many people that talk about it like that. And um, yeah. yeah, it's hard.
0: Yeah. And that that fear response is what can stop us before we even get started because it's, What are they going to say back? Are are they going to agree? You know, we several months ago, my husband and I had a super vulnerable conversation about uh, just where our intimacy was now, and like we've been married eleven years. You would think that you would think that conversation is easy, eleven years in. But when you haven't talked about it in a while, it's like, where's he going to be? Like, where am I? Where you know? How am I going to? You're a different person than you were eleven years ago. Yeah, no, that's so true too. And so yes, you're right. Like the fear of it can, can stop you before you even get started. But then when you're, it can also be so freeing on the other side of it when you've said it. And, and there's been the response, even if it's not the response you were looking for, if it's just a response of, I hear you and I see you and let's work through this. It's like, okay, we don't have to have an answer right now. Yeah, exactly.
1: I I love that you shared that and it reminded me of something that just happened a few days ago between me and my husband and and I think over time you learn how to um how to have these conversations and also ask for what you need because mm-hmm. one thing that I've learned about communication is that we all are loved, feel loved and supported in a certain way. And our partner cannot read our mind. And sometimes we don't even know what that is until maybe they do the opposite. And then we're like, that's not it. <laughs> and so, and you have to have that dialogue open as well. And so um, the other night I shared something s- super vulnerable uh, about my mental health. And I had kind of been procrastinating on telling him and I, I told my best friend and, and I was like, I really need to you know, clue my husband in on this. And I, what I do now is I preface the conversation with how I want to be supported. So I'll Mm -hmm. say something like, I'm I'm about to tell you something big Mm -hmm. and I need you to just listen and make eye contact with me. And like, I'm that specific because like, I need your undivided attention because I feel like I'm like ripping my heart out and handing it to you. Mm -hmm. So, um, here's what I need you to do. And, and I said, I'm probably going to cry because that can be a trigger for him. And, and like, he, he starts to not listen and just want to like solve the problem by having me stop crying. And so I, if I tell him ahead of time, he can brace himself for it and listen better. And so I'm like, I'm probably going to cry. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm going to get in the shower and I'll I'll tell you in a minute why I decided to do that. And I told him ahead of time. So I tell him the thing I talked for a solid 10 minutes and then I pause and he's looking very concerned over there. And then I just kind of like wiped my face and I'm like, that's about it. I'm going to go hop in the shower. And the reason that I did that is because as soon as I was done talking, he looked a little fragile (laughs) because he's, he's a digester. Like he needs time to think and like mull over and really process. I'm the opposite. I am like, I can keep talking. Like I want to talk about it now. Also, my default is to take care of other people's feelings. I do it with my parents. Um, It's my role. I don't know if it's because I'm the youngest child or what, but I will, and it's a way for me to run away from my feelings. So by me, just like saying, I'll be back. I'm gonna go take a shower and, and come back. It was a way for me to take care of myself by being with my own feelings, as well as not shifting to take care of his. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And then I got out of the shower and he came and gave me a hug and, you know, we came back together and talked about it a little bit more and we were great. Like we're better for it. So that's just an example of how we've both learned to navigate hard conversations and ask for what we need.
0: And even setting the expectations and that word can sound harsh, but that's exactly what you did. You set the expectation of here's what I need here's, here's kind of how this is going to go. Here's what I'm going to do after. And, and here's just what I expect from me opening up to you in this moment. Yeah. And it is something so easy. I mean, simple, but we just don't think to do it. No, usually no one's ever taught us. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we, I feel like we're kind of taught it as parents to be very clear with what we want from our toddlers. Uh-huh. Like that's where we're taught it. But then it's not really kept going or even, you know, gone into more relationships in our life of why don't we just tell the other person what we're needing right now and, and being willing to do that for the other person. Right.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, when I did get out of the shower, um, I did ask him, I'm like, how are you, you know, in this moment? And it's not like I completely ignored his feelings or anything like that, but I did need that extra 10 minutes for myself to not have to worry about him. Again, because it's my way of like running away from my problems and also it's codependent behavior. And I, I pointed that out to him too. So he understands like what my default is and what I'm doing um, as a as a way for, for us to do that for each other, as well as if he hated that, that I did that, I would, that's his moment to tell me. And we can work out a different way to do it. And it has taken us, that took us a solid decade to get to that place where we can communicate that way. My previous marriage, we yelled, we name called we accused, we blamed, we manipulated. Um, you know, I learned how to emotional manipulate very fast. And there's a part of me that's embarrassed to admit that, but when you're in that kind of codependent, addicted, avoidant relationship, you develop terrible patterns. And I, and I, and I think that, and this isn't to blame either party, but no one walks away from that unscathed. And like, okay, I'm ready to have like a really great, healthy relationship with, I know, <laughs> with no, you know, looking out at my part.
0: Absolutely. There's one thing you said in in that story about how you had been talking to your best friend and you said, I knew I needed to go to my husband. Mm-hmm. So there's one of your chapters that says, stop talking. Hold on. I have to... I have to look up how. Stop I said complaining this. if you don't plan on doing anything about it. <laughs> yes. So, do you watch the show Ted Lasso?
1: I don't, but I need to. I canceled
0: my Apple Plus and need to just re. Yeah, it's I will. worth the five dollars to just binge <laughs> Ted will. Lasso for two weeks. So there's there's just one scene where one of the characters in it, she said one time, "Stop auditioning your complaints," and I said, "Pause it, rewind. Like I have to hear that again," and because it's what I do. I will complain. Like I'll go to my husband after work, complain about things, go to my friend, complain just to vent. And I mm-hmm. think there's a place for venting, yes. but there's also this place of if you keep venting about the same thing and you're not actually gonna do anything about it, then that process that cycle's not gonna go anywhere. Like it's only gonna make everything worse within me. So at, how do you do that? How have you made it a point to stop complaining if you're not going to do anything about it and turn it into action? I think
1: I've been using that expression for so many years that I don't even really need to catch myself anymore. I mean, there are some things that I complain about, you know, like. It's probably too much information, but I I live there. I'm 46 and now, like my periods are really irregular. Suddenly, so like I'm gonna complain about that. <laughs> it's just like like small minor yeah. inconveniences like are one thing. Right. You know, the story that I tell in the book is is a big one, and it's and it's about. Sometimes when we're complaining about bigger things, there's either a hard conversation that needs to happen or a boundary that needs to happen, and those are basically, you know, they're very, very similar things. Um, but that's typically what we're afraid of because we either don't have the skills to do it. We're afraid of um, hard. You know, I always say like, you're. It's not that you're just afraid of con- confrontation and conflict. Like everyone is. Like the only people who aren't are legitimate, like sociopaths. You're afraid of having a hard conversation because it's super uncomfortable and vulnerable, and there's there's no certain outcome of it, and that's why we keep complaining because it feels like we're doing something, it feels like we're taking action, and and we're not. And um, it, it also like I don't want to be dismissive about having to learn the skills of of having a boundary or a hard conversation. That's not something I take lightly or tell anybody to walk into cold.
0: Hmm how do you define what a boundary is? So a boundary is is very specific about a certain
1: behavior that someone is doing that is not okay with you anymore. Maybe it was never okay and you just didn't say anything. Uh, and also uh, uh, there, the difference between a hard conversation and a boundary is that a, a boundary will lay out some kind of sort of like, you know, line in the sand and say like, if this behavior keeps continuing, here is the consequence. Either, you know, I can't be in this friendship with you anymore. um, You can't come over to my house for dinner if you keep getting drunk every time and driving home or or something like that. I think the hardest part of the boundary isn't the conversation itself. It's the follow through on what you said is going to be the consequence.
0: Yeah. The boundary conversation is so essential. And it's something where maybe you've seen this in in your own life or with the people that you work with. I've seen it a lot in the, in my own life and the people that I work with where there have been times where I'll want to set a boundary. I call it a boundary. It's not a boundary. It's a punishment. I'm trying to punish another person just because I didn't like what they did. Yeah. And so that has been for me, like the, that is, those are two huge, two different things. This is a boundary. Isn't about punishing someone else because you didn't like what they did. It's about protecting yourself from an action or behavior that is negatively hurting or affecting you.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe what was more necessary was a hard conversation, Yeah, And saying, cause sometimes that's where it starts. It starts with a hard conversation. You expressing to that person that, um, you didn't like what they did. And a lot of times that's what we do in our marriages is we, we have hard conversations. Like, um, you know, my husband who, who will always listen to me and he also jumps to fix things. So I would say hard conversation would say, I know how much you love me and that you support me. And I know every time you do this, it's because you love me. But when you immediately jump to a solution, when I am coming to you about something that that's not what I need, like, do you think you could do this instead? So I'm not giving him like a, if you keep doing this, I'm going to leave you, or I'm going to stop sharing things with you. That would be a boundary, but, um, it's just, it's a hard conversation.
0: Mm. Do you think sometimes we need to set boundaries with ourselves?
1: hundred percent.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. As a former addict, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, congratulations on being sober for... 10 years. That's
1: fantastic. 10 years from alcohol and 14 for love addiction
0: and codependency. That's fantastic. Thank you. So what are some, if you mind sharing, if you don't mind sharing, what are some of those boundaries that you've set so that you don't fall back into... Those habits, those patterns.
1: I constantly tell on myself, so I'll give you an example. Um, and there's a saying in twelve step programs that says, "Like we always know when we're using, or we always know when like our intention is to use," and, and so it goes in alignment with that. So. I've struggled in the past with love addiction and very, very short definition of that is is instead, like imagine somebody who uses drugs and alcohol as their high and as their way to escape from life. I used love and relationships and sometimes sex. And um I'm very attached, uh, attachment style, anxious attachment style. And so my dad died in 2016 and this man that I'm friends with on Facebook and we hardly ever talk or comment on each other's stuff. We had a pretty intense but short relationship in our twenties and he private messaged me and gave his condolences when my father passed away and said, um, you know, he was always so nice to me. I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. And then I responded and we had, we were starting to have a back and forth conversation and then, and he's married with children. And what, from what I can tell, he's very happily married. And you know, what the part of a conversation where someone kind of wraps it up, you know, like they're like, okay, well, I got to get back to work. It was so nice chatting with you. And when I got that message from him, I felt like devastated. Like, no, I don't want this conversation to end. Like, how can I, how can I keep this conversation going in that moment? I realized this is me trying to use again. Like this is me wanting him to change the way I feel, wanting him to um, help me run away from the grief that I'm feeling over my father. This has nothing to do with him. like and the very dangerous part of me would like go down a path of like, what if I left my marriage and like went and found him? And like, that is what addicts do. <laughs> So I share that story for two reasons. One, that we always have to be vigilant about our recovery. We always, it's important for us to spot, not only spot, but listen to our intuition when our intuition is like, girl, like that's not, that's not an okay behavior for you to do and, and, and follow that. And so I stopped messaging him and I'm like, okay, put it down, delete messenger from your phone if you have to like, yeah. Um, and so, and I haven't spoken to him since, and that was five years ago. So it, it's, it's examples like that where it just really trusting my gut when it tells me this is not okay.
0: Yeah. I loved, I loved that part of the book too. Have you read the book, how we, it's either how we choose or how we decide by Jonah Lehrer. I haven't. So it talks, it's a lot about how your the mind works, like neuropsychology, all of the fun stuff. But in it, he has this chapter about why trusting our gut is actually psychological. I mean, it actually is. there. It's a bunch of things happening subconsciously we don't realize, putting things together that is then giving us that feeling, that gut feeling, that intuition. And so it's not as frou-frou as people claim for it to be. It really is mostly grounded in your neurocognition and the way that things are actually firing. I believe that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because there's just so much we're taking in that's connecting and leading us to that, even if we can't explain fully why we're having that feeling or, or trusting our gut. I believe so I, it
1: because the more yeah. we practice it, like, I mean, neuro, we know about neural pathways. we know how, you know, connections are made. And the, the more we practice something, the more those kind of neuro highways become more permanent instead of just temporary. It, like, it's not that different from learning how to tie your shoe and, and, or learning how to do like a burpee versus like learning when you are going off the deep end and private messaging and X boyfriend. (laughs) It's, it's similar and, and it's a muscle for, you know, not, not the perfect term, but it's, I totally believe that, that it's more than just like woo woo, you know, airy fairy gases and spirit happening in our body.
0: Yeah. The other boundaries I was thinking of setting with myself, and this is coming from what I'm struggling or what I struggle with is, you know, when someone emails me and says, you know, what time are you, or we need to meet about X. What time are you available? Or when they're texting me something, I don't have to respond then. Right. They're not right. even asking me to respond then, but there's this, this something inside of me that says, well, I have to do it now. And then I can start getting angry and resentful and like, gosh, everyone just wants my time. But I haven't even set the boundary with myself of, I don't have to check my email. I don't have to respond right now. I'm putting that on myself. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think that's both um, societal conditioning that we've received, you know, to be accommodating to people, as well as our culture. You know, we live in a in a culture now that there are so many different ways to get a hold of people, people that we we typically didn't have access to before. You can private message someone and boxer and texting and and oh god, the the ways are endless. And I have also have had to learn to do that and what's helped me is to to have boundaries with my clients and um and that helps me have boundaries with everybody else i love it
0: i could talk to you for hours Same. because <laughs> If I didn't have a client in five minutes, I would say like, no, let's keep talking. (laughs) Right. So I highly recommend people. I mean, this, we haven't even really, we've touched on some things in the book, but we've just talked a lot about life and, and how we cope with things and and you've shared amazing things. So thank you for being so open and and vulnerable and transparent with the audience. Tell us how our audience can connect with you, how they can get your book and your favorite Peloton instructor.
1: Oh, Okay. So um probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is andreaowen.com. I also have a free workbook that coincides with the book. If anybody is interested in it, it's AndreaOwen.com slash MSN. And I also have a podcast called Make Some Noise that write interview experts and, and do all kinds of fun and great things over there. So I I'm slightly biased because Jess King and I are friends in real life. So she is my favorite instructor. I love her EDM <laughs> rides, but also like yeah. you want to be entertained. Take a class with Cody Rigsby. Like always. Mm, I haven't done Cody Rigsby yet. He's on dancing with the stars too.
0: So oh, that's what, okay. So that's where I've him. heard his name. I love Allie
1: love. Okay. I like her too. A lot. Yeah. She's my girl. I, I also love Day, and it's so hard to narrow it down. And Alex Toussaint's, um Club Bangers, right? Reminds me of like going out to the club 20 years ago. And those oh are fun. Gosh.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Andrea. Everyone check out Make Some Noise. Go visit her, follow her on Instagram, go to the website, all the things. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much. Bye everyone. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember to follow It Starts With Attraction anywhere you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. The more positive reviews we get, the more positive change we can make for relationships and for individuals around the world. For show notes, updates, and the opportunity to join our email list for encouraging weekly strategies for you to become the best that you can be in all areas of your pies, go to piesuniversity.com. Again, that is piesuniversity.com. Keep working on your pies and always remember, it starts with attraction. If you could rate yourself on a one to 10, 10 being extremely confident and one being confidence has fallen out the floor, you don't even know where it is, you can't see it, you can't find it, what number would you be? If you didn't score a perfect 10, that doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. It just means that there are areas for improvement. Research suggests that like attracts like. That's why I created the Best Self Course, a 30-day online course designed to help you completely reset everything you thought you knew about attraction, tell you the truth about what real attraction is, help determine your goals, and most of all, achieve them. Click the link to join the course now. It is guaranteed that if you go through this course and apply the principles that I will teach you, then you will see dramatic change in your confidence levels, in how you feel about yourself and how you show up in your relationships with other people and become the best version of yourself. This is not a quick fix. This is a sustainable, long-term self-evaluation accompanied by an action plan to help you get back on track and live the life that you want. You work on yourself for you. When we work on our pies, it doesn't just help us become more attractive individuals. It helps us realize that we have worth, that we have value. And as a result, our confidence increases. Our self-esteem goes up. We begin to actually believe in ourselves and realize that we have worth. That is why I created this course, to show you that you matter, that you are valued, and that you can be doing things right now in your life to treat yourself that way, but also to show others that same sort of grace and kindness and confidence in your life. By completing this course, you will become more attractive to those around you, have better relationships with friends and family, become a better person within your career and occupation, find purpose and fulfillment in your life, and so much more. This is not a diet. This is not a workout routine. This is not a trending fad. This is an action plan to bring real life change. Get the first lesson for free when you sign up today. Click the link below to join now.